at the uh, seven letters to the seven churches. Today we get back into uh, John's vision in Revelation, and things are about to get weird. Uh, John returns to this dream vision. There have been all these warnings and challenges to the church, and of course, now what we're really interested in is how is it that what's going on behind the scenes is going to help us achieve all these things that, that, uh, that Christ has put us up to, all the things that he's asked of the church. And the overriding message, perhaps, of Revelation is that the story in which we participate is Jesus' story to write. It, it's his. He, he owns it. And so if we accept that, if we embrace that story as our own, we only stand to win. No matter what we have to endure it in the meantime, uh, it's his story to write, and, and he's going to end up being victorious. And if we're on his side of the story, we end up being victorious along with him. It also means that if we reject his story, no matter how vehemently we do so, we're going to be disappointed. So these churches that are asked to take on these difficult tasks to uh, endure persecution or to spread the word, all these different things that, that we talked about in the seven letters, they are looking for this story writer. They want to know more about him. And John is going to present this information to us, starting with this open door in heaven. So he sees in his vision this open door. And in, uh, in, in Hebrew thinking, in Jewish thinking, the heaven is the sky, and the open door is in the sky. And, and the sky is the realm of God, but perhaps not in the way that, that we've learned about it. It is uh, the realm of God because it is over and above everything. God is not uh, relegated to some far-off place. He is everywhere. And the sky is his realm because it envelops everything else. And so when we think about this door opening up to heaven... Uh, we need to think of it maybe not in as distant terms as we have sometimes learned. When we think of heaven as being a place sort of beyond our heavens, there's a problem. And that problem is that as our knowledge of the universe continues to grow, uh, we keep pushing heaven further away. Right? So heaven was just beyond the clouds, and now it's beyond outer space, and and pretty soon God becomes very, very distant. And it's highly unlikely that any of the biblical writers ever intended, us for, uh, intended for us to imagine God as being that distant. Because God is present here, heaven, earth, and under the earth. And so it might be helpful as we get into this vision to imagine this door not so much as a doorway to a far-off place, but a doorway to a close place that we don't normally see. might remember that story of Elisha and his servant. When the enemy is at the gate and the servant is very nervous, what are we going to do? We're going to be killed. And Elisha prays that his servant's eyes will be opened. And when his eyes are opened, he sees that there is this vast angelic army 
surrounding their enemies, and so they're not really in any danger at all. We must think of this vision that John has kind of in those terms. Uh, yes, it is up there, it is in the sky, because that's where we um, figuratively place God being over all things. But this doorway is simply a vision into a realm that we are not usually privy to. And that's where we begin in Revelation chapter 4, starting with verse 1. It says, After these things I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice which I heard, which I had heard, like the sound of a trumpet speaking with me, said, Come up here, and I will show you what may, must take place after these things. Immediately I was in the Spirit, in other words, I'm in this vision, in this dream, and behold, a throne was standing in heaven, and someone was sitting on the throne, and he who was sitting was like a jasper stone and a sardius in appearance, and there was a rainbow around the throne like an emerald in appearance. Now there's plenty going on in this chapter, and it just gets weirder from here. There is this dream logic at work, and already everything looks like gemstones. Everything looks like diamonds and rubies and emeralds. Um, it's probably going to be helpful just to know that the dominating theme of this chapter is worship. Whatever else is happening, just to understand that the dominant theme of chapter 4 is worship. John's vision of the throne will really sort of set the stage for everything that's going to come after in, in the Revelation. Uh, all the prophetic visions that will follow. And John is attempting to describe things that are really indescribable. And so he uses a sort of very poetic, very dreamy language because words are not completely adequate to explain what's, what's happening. And as if to really cement this picture that he's drawing for us of how glorious God is, he presents us with various scenes in Revelation of intense worship. There's this great worship going on, and it is continual. It's, it's constant. Now, I was a teenager uh, when the church was experiencing something that we uh, sometimes came to call the worship wars. I don't know how many of you will remember the worship wars. Uh, it was a very dramatic terminology that basically uh, what that meant was that you had a lot of traditional churches where they had only ever sung hymns on Sunday morning, and somebody came along and said, we're going to start singing some more contemporary Christian music uh, pieces. We're going to start adding some, some music. And this, this sort of started these worship wars, and so you had churches in every community that were struggling with how to do this. How do we add new music? And you had people on the extremes reacting to this. Some people felt like the, 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 the newer music was not really sacred music at all. It had to be at least 200 years old and in the book in order to be sacred music. And, uh, and then you had young people who thought that the, the hymns were garbage, and we just needed to get rid of them, and they were ready to throw out the baby with the bathwater. And so you kind of have these extremes and these people battling with each other over this. In my 
hometown and my congregation, uh, for instance, the songs that the young people sang at camps and retreats and rallies and things that we would do in and, and our devotionals, those songs were not allowed to be sung uh, Sunday morning during worship services because we had, s- we had some leaders in the church who felt like they were not appropriate. They were, f- they were fine for youth worship, but they were not appropriate for the church service. And uh, we eventually sort of struck this truce uh, where the youth group would sing a couple of their songs before the worship service officially started. And that was, that was kind of our foray into the worship wars. Other churches launched separate services. So you might remember there was a time there when churches sometimes have a traditional service at 8 o'clock and a contemporary service at 9 or 10. We fought back and forth over these things. And I wish I could say it was about substance. I wish I, wish I could say that it, we were looking at the lyrics of those songs and going, well, this is biblical or this is not biblical. But that was rarely the case. Mostly what we were doing is going, well, I like this kind of music, and I like this kind of music, and we'll just we'll have this big battle over it. And so most of what we called the worship wars is probably largely unnecessary. But looking back, I kind of understand why it happened. I kind of understand how high the stakes are when it comes to worship. Worship is central to Christian practice. In a lot of ways, it is worship that defines us as Christian people. Uh, And it is common across all Christian traditions. All of us, everybody meeting this morning, and the one church that met yesterday, all of us have this in common. We all worship Jesus. We all sing songs. We all participate in this practice. It's ubiquitous to the Christian faith. No matter what theology or tradition may separate us, we all believe in the importance of worship. And so, this is kind of a a curiosity to me over the years, whenever somebody goes to plant a new church or to try to maybe start a new worship service at their church that they want to appeal to unchurched people. We want to appeal to people who don't know Jesus. We want to do something different so it'll be more accessible to outsiders. What we do mostly is we tweak the worship. Try to figure out what what kind of worship would appeal to to non-believers. Now, I want you to think about this for a second. Asking non-believers what kind of Jesus worship they prefer is kind of like asking a vegetarian how they want their hamburger cooked. It doesn't make a lot of sense. And this is one of the things that we need to understand about worship as we get into this. Worship doesn't make sense to non-Christians. And in all honesty, it is misunderstood by many Christians. Do we know why we do what we do? If a non-believer comes into a church building and watches worship happen, 
They may understand, culturally understand, that this is what Christians do when they get together. But why? And it's strange to them. It's odd. We're often asking the unchurched what kind of worship would appeal to you. We haven't actually answered their question, which is, why worship? Why would I do this? And believers, a lot of times, we're not really clear on our answer to that question. We've sort of taken for granted that worship is part of what we do. If you grew up in this, you understand that this is, this is, this is what we do when we get together. We worship. Primarily, we worship in song. Let's acknowledge that there are a lot of different ways to worship. But primarily, we have this song service as part of our worship time. And this is what we do. And then, we think, well, if this is what we do, we want to make it interesting to us. We want to make it appealing to us. And as we start messing with it, say, okay, this is, the, this is the style that I like, or this is the style that I don't like. And, uh, and, then, and then we get into that whole mindset. We kind of focus a little bit on what about worship makes us feel good. What inspires us? What, um, what touches us emotionally? And, and we usually, you know, um, apply some church speak to that. We kind of give it a spiritual language. We talk about being closer to God. Talk, that song was really spirit-filled. or uh, That touched my heart. And listen, uh, that's awesome. Uh, I, I, I'm not criticizing that. I want you to be engaged with worship. We should probably be more engaged with worship. We probably should have more emotion about it. We should be more excited about it. We should be more touched by it. It would be great if we were more emotional and more expressive in worship. I'm all for those things. But it's easy to kind of lose sight of the point that worship is not about us. Worship is not about me. Worship is about the Lord. The point of Christian worship is that everybody is worshiping something. There's not a non-choice. You can't just be neutral on the subject of worship. Everybody is worshiping something. Because worship, basically, is just the practice of elevating something above everything else. Now, that might be in song. That might be through a variety of different things that we, that we do that. But we elevate something above everything else. And there are lots of things in our culture that are false gods, false idols for people to worship. But when we boil it down, basically, most people in our world worship themselves. They do what's in their best interest, and they place that above everything. The point of worship is that everybody worships something, and there ought to be something worthy of worship. The fundamental question of worship is who deserves to occupy that space. We worship ourselves even though 
even a, even a non-believer could probably acknowledge that I don't necessarily deserve to occupy that space of being more important than everything else in the world. And so we have this picture in Revelation of divine worship, of worship at the throne of God. And there's a lot that we can gain, a lot that it can teach us about what worship is really for and about. And so we come to verse 4. It says, Around the throne there were 24 thrones, and upon the thrones I saw 24 elders sitting, clothed in white garments and golden crowns on their heads. Out from the throne came flashes of lightning and sounds and peals of thunder, and there were seven lamps of fire burning before the throne, which is the seven spirits of God. And before the throne there was something like a sea of glass, like crystal, in the center and around the throne, four living creatures full of eyes in front and behind. Let's pause there for a minute because the imagery is getting a little weird. And let's just recognize what is familiar about what's going on in this passage, because as odd as it is, there really are some very familiar things. Again, at this point, it'd be helpful for us to remember that the temple in Jerusalem, the way the temple was laid out by God, remember all those designs for the temple and the tabernacle before it are given to the people by God. He tells them specifically how to build it. The temple in Jerusalem is meant to be a picture of the throne room of God in heaven. The temple represented the throne of heaven. It is the earthbound representation of God's realm. And the holy of holies within the temple is God's throne. Right In the holy of holies contains the, the Ark of the Covenant. And the space between the cherubim at the top of the Ark of the Covenant is called the mercy seat. It is, in effect, representative of God's chair. It is God's throne. And so the temple is this physical picture of this spiritual place, God's, God's throne. Uh, and that holy of holies was such a holy place, such a divine place, there's such a sense of divine power and presence that it was considered very dangerous. So dangerous that you had this extremely thick curtain that, that, that sectioned it off from the rest of the temple. And there's one guy, the high priest, who would go inside that curtain one time every year. I'm guessing he had to do a lot of dusting while he was there. Once a year you enter that space because it's so perfect, so divine. The presence of God is so powerful and so dangerous. And here in this vision that John gives us, there's like thunder and lightning around the throne. So it has that same sense of danger and power about it. But the veil isn't there. The veil is gone. Everything's just open. In the temple stood a lamp, a lampstand of hammered gold, a hammered gold lampstand with seven branches, what we, what we now call a menorah, seven branches on this lampstand. And here, in John's vision, there are seven lamps, right, representing the Holy Spirit, temple on earth, 
throne in heaven. If we understand that a, a, a good part of what John is describing to us correlates with the holy temple in Jerusalem, it's going to help us maybe understand some of the other pieces about what's going on here. For instance, the 24 elders. The 24 elders really unite imagery from Israel and the church. So around the throne of God, around the throne of Christ, you have these 24 other thrones, and in these thrones is seated these elders. Now, the specific identity of the 24 elders is, is much debated. Uh, I've read a lot of theories, and, and I don't know that any one of them rises above any of the others. Probably the most common theory is that the, uh, the 24 elders represent the 12 tribes of Israel and the 12 apostles, kind of two ages of the faith. But I'm not sure that the specific identity of the elders is even the point of the, the passage. There is a tie here to the temple, because in temple service, uh, you had the priesthood, descendants of Aaron, and those priests were divided into 24 divisions. And those 24 divisions had responsibility for different things at different times in uh, managing the temple and managing the worship of Almighty God. And so there is that tie to the ancient temple. But the other thing that we can't miss about these elders that are seated around the throne of Christ is that they match the description that John has given us in the seven letters for the overcomers, for the victors. They wear crowns. They wear robes of white. They are seated alongside Christ. These are all things that the letter said would be blessings upon the overcomers. And so the, the, the 24 elders represent in some way the overcomers from among God's covenant peoples. The sea of glass represents God's control over everything that appears chaotic. Now, you'll remember that there was a sea in the temple courtyard. It was a digital depiction of it. There was this sea in the temple courtyard. It's this great bronze or brass vat, and it, it was uh, sitting upon uh, 12 bronze oxen. It was enormous. Based on the description, uh, we estimate that it held about 17,000 gallons. So this is a pretty, pretty big tank. And the water in that tank was used for the cleansing, the ceremonial cleansing rites of the, the priests. This sea was in the courtyard. John depicts this sea as sitting right before the throne of God. Now the interesting thing about this, both with the sea in the ancient temple and the sea before the throne of God, is that in Jewish thought, in Hebrew thought, the sea represents chaos. The sea is this uncontrollable and dangerous thing. It represents uh, something that, and, and, and is equated largely with Sheol, the place of the dead. Because when the sea claims lives, where do they rest? At the bottom of the sea, mostly. 
And so the sea represents all of this, this, this lack of control that we have over life. Now you think about that when Jesus calms the seas, when they wake Jesus from his sleep because the boat's being tossed around, he wakes up and he says, peace, and the seas calm down. That's, a, that's pretty impressive by itself, but in Hebrew culture, this whole idea of chaos, like th- this guy can say no to the chaos and it settles down. He can tame the untamable. And so we're given this picture of the sea existing there in the throne room of God immediately before the throne, but how is the sea acting in the presence of the Lord? It is smooth as glass. It looks like crystal. It's that calm. Because even the chaos responds to the authority of the Lord. This brings us to the strangest part of this initial vision, which is the four creatures. It's four creatures with eyes covering them, front and back. Picking it up in verse 7, the first living creature was like a lion. The second creature was like a calf. The third creature had a face like that of a man, and the fourth creature was like a flying eagle. And the four living creatures, each one of them having six wings, are full of eyes around and within, and day and night they do not cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God, the Almighty, who was and who is and who is to come. Again, a little weird, but not completely unfamiliar. These creatures have appeared before. They're very similar to some creatures that, uh, that appear in uh, Ezekiel, to the prophet Ezekiel. And the four creatures, we often describe them as heavenly creatures, and I'm not sure that we should take it that literally. This is a dream vision, remember. So... We, we describe them as if they're uh, literal heavenly beings that exist in this form. Uh, I think it's probably what's more important about them is, is what they represent, what they symbolize. The four creatures represent the whole of creation. So again, in Hebrew thought, the soul, the Hebrew word nefesh, the soul is something that breathes. Something has been inspired with the breath of God and is therefore alive. It is not the disembodied self as as we've often been taught. It it is a a living thing, a breathing thing. It has flesh that's created by God and has a breath that brings that flesh to life. God breathed life into Adam, Genesis says. Breathed life into Adam and he became a soul. Adam didn't have a soul. Adam was a soul. And the way that this term is used in Hebrew, it applies to every creature that has breath. So a, 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 a horse that's alive has a soul. Uh, a duck that's alive ha- is a soul. A, your dog is a soul. They're all breathing creatures. They're all creatures that have been brought to life by divine breath. Here, the vision offers us representatives of all of those breathing creatures. 
The lion represents all of the wild creatures. The calf or the bull represents domesticated creatures. The one with the face of a man represents humanity. And the eagle represents all the creatures of the air. So all the breathing creatures of earth. And they are covered with eyes. Which basically means that collectively, the creatures observe everything. That creation, in effect, never sleeps. There's always something going on. Like around here, night falls, and you walk outside, not so much lately because it's been super dry, but you walk outside at night and you hear the frogs. The frogs have suddenly just, just come to life. And there's other night creatures that come out, the bats and the owls, all the, the creation is, is constantly observing. It's constantly watching. It never completely sleeps. They all have six wings, which is interesting. It's kind of a deviation from other prophetic images. These six wings, Ezekiel's uh, have four. Uh, all of a sudden, they've got six wings. Well, I want to say that the number six is incredibly important in Revelation, if seven is the perfect number, there's all these sevens in Revelation, seven of, seven of so many different things. It's perfect, represents completeness and balance and shalom. Six represents almost. Almost there. And uh, you'll remember one of our Revelation principles is that the most dangerous evil is almost. What does that mean in, in this case? Well, in regard to worship, the most dangerous evil of creation is when we take the creation and regard it as if it were the creator. That's basically what idolatry is. We take something in creation and we elevate that and say, this is God. Whether it, whether it be a beast or a man, elevate that up and say, this, this is God. And say, no, you're, you're missing it. It's almost there because that is the creation. But God is seven. God is the perfect. God is the creator. And then we read in verse 8, And the four living creatures, each one of them having six wings and full of eyes around and within, and day and night they do not cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and who is and who is to come. And when the living creatures... Give glory, honor, and thanks to him who sits on the throne, to him who lives forever and ever. The 24 elders will fall down before him who sits on the throne, and they will worship him who lives forever and ever, and will cast their crowns before the throne, saying, Worthy are you, our Lord and our God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and because of your will they existed and were created. All right. Let's just let me be honest here in this moment and say that some people imagine eternity, based on passages like this, some people imagine eternity as an everlasting and kind of freaky worship service. There is a dream logic at work here. And the events happening around the throne are happening in continuous succession. John says every time 
these four creatures worship the Lord, which is continually, every time they do that, the elders on the thrones throw their crowns down and prostrate themselves before the throne of God. So we have this image almost like a, like a constant video loop. These things just keep happening over and over again. It's happening constantly. And this is kind of, uh, when we take these things real literally, we kind of imagine ourselves entering into eternity and occupying that space and behaving kind of like the creatures in the vision. We're just continually, you know, either saying how holy God is or we're falling down, we're throwing our crowns. That's, that's what we're going to be doing for the rest of eternity. And consequently, some people who are planning to go to heaven dread heaven only slightly less than they dread hell. Now, I like to worship. I love worship music. I actually believe in what I do. I put a lot of effort into preaching the word. I believe in what I do. Whether or not you choose to listen is, is up to you, but, but I, I believe in what I do. I, I believe in the power of people opening the word and, and discerning. But I don't want to be here all day. I, I, I don't want to spend all Sunday here with you preaching and singing. As much as I would enjoy the singing for a while, as much as I'd enjoy worshiping with you, maybe longer than we do now, but I don't want to be here all day. I don't want to be here all week. And I certainly don't want to be for eternity at a church worship service. Well, let me give you some good news. That's not what this image is about. The image here is not saying you, 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 when, when we all get to heaven, we get to spend the rest of eternity at a divine church service, as impressive, much more impressive, I'm sure, than any service we've ever put on here. What it's saying is that all of creation offers itself as living worship. This is what's happening before the throne, but if we open our eyes to it, this is what's happening around us all the time. The balance of our world, the beauty of our world, the intricate design of God's creation, the infinite diversity. The creation is, right now, in this moment, you walk outside into the world, the creation is declaring the glory of God. God's creation is so magnificent that its very existence praises him. Paul says in Romans chapter 1 that it's because of the creation that nobody can deny the existence of God. As hard as we try, as much as we can, we can make the effort, the creation defies us. Because once you witness that, you've no excuse for not knowing that God is. Psalm 150 says, and this is this really echoing uh, what's going on in this passage. Psalm 150 says, let everything that has breath, every nefesh, let everything that has breath worship the Lord. And 
it does. By simple virtue of having been created, of being God's masterpiece, of existing as God's creation, the creation is constantly worshiping God. Every season, every life, every birth, every death, everything is worshiping the Lord. And even man. Because one of the creatures is man. One of the creatures has the face of a man. What's he doing there? What does that mean? It means even man, as a creature, cannot resist worshiping God. So this creature representing man, because even in the unbelief of mankind, our existence continues to worship. This is the great irony of denying that there is a God, the great irony of atheism. That I reject the very presence of God, and yet my presence on the earth worships God, whether I want to or not. My creation is witness to God. The beauty and the complexity of humanity is witness and glory for God. No matter how we use our lives to defy our Creator, our lives demonstrate His presence. And against this backdrop of inevitable worship that the overcomers cast their crowns down and prostrate, prostrate themselves before the throne. You see, the worship of the church is distinctive because. N.T. Wright posits this, that, that what separates you as a human being, what separates you from the animal kingdom, what makes you more than mere creature, is the word because. And it's the word because in this very passage. Why do the elders worship? Because. See, the creation will worship inevitably. The creation will worship because it only exists because God created it, and its very existence is worship of God. But the elders, the overcomers, they are the ones who acknowledge that everything exists because of God. They are the ones that acknowledge that not only does everything worship God, but God is actually the only one worthy of being worshipped. That's part of what makes them overcomers. It's what makes us overcomers. Worship is inevitable, but it's a lot more beautiful when we've chosen it. When we choose to participate, we choose to be engaged in it, when we believe that our God is actually worthy of what we're offering him. So why do we worship? We worship because everybody worships something, and most people worship things that aren't worthy of that worship. Most people elevate as the most important thing in their life things that are simply not the most important thing in existence. We worship because we acknowledge that our Lord is worthy of our worship. And when we do so, 
we're giving the rest of the world the option of turning away from unworthy things and worshiping something that actually deserves to be worshipped, our Lord Jesus Christ.